A new report on pregnancy-related deaths shows the lingering effects of COVID, and the U.S. falls from bad to worse. Activist investor and billionaire Bill Ackman wants to give every baby in the U.S. $1 million. But don't worry, it won't cost you a thing. And in Hawaii, water birth advocates suggest that dolphins could be the new doulas. But the price might make you flip. We're here to get you through it all. Our goal is to deliver a better future, one healthy baby at a time. We're the Green Docs, two OBGYNs talking about the environment and how it affects women's health and birth outcomes. I'm Nate. I'm an OBGYN in Newport Beach and the environmental health expert for the national and international OBGYN societies, as well as a part-time watch collector. And I'm Bruce, an OB in San Diego longtime environmental activist type and a proud owner of a really cool Thermidor induction cooktop that boils water in 90 seconds, which when I'm bored, I sometimes just go down and do just because it's amazing. Today on Dr. Smith Goes to Washington, we're talking about doctors as advocates for their patients. This is the stuff beyond one-on-one patient care. And also the part you didn't know, how healthcare for women actually connects to our concerns about the environment. Helping us understand that connection is our friend, Dr. Kristen Lyerly, another OBGYN doctor and a recent candidate for state assembly in Wisconsin. We will get to our interview with Kristen shortly. But first, let's talk about those headlines. Nate, what do you make of those headlines that we started with? Well, we really began with some some bad news up front, uh, more kind of more to deal with in this pregnancy-related deaths topic. Uh, I mean, just to put this in some context, that the numbers are still rather low when you think about it in absolute terms. So a pregnancy-related death is anything that happens during pregnancy or the first 40 days afterwards. In the United States, it rose from roughly 15, uh, back where it was a few years ago, to 35 per 100,000, where it is now, so 0.0035, but, but rising and, and high compared to our uh, peers like in Canada and in Europe. Yeah, it is surprising. Uh, but it also, I think, as much as it depends upon a lot of different factors, uh, it's worth pointing out that one of them is uh, access to health care. And we'll certainly be talking about that later on in this episode. And, and there's really so much so much that goes into it. Uh, but, but I think that there's a, um, you know, kind of a, a dimension to this that that we don't always cover, which which is how it ties into environmental factors, uh, which is kind of what we're here to, to help explain. But but there's 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 so much more that gets impacted by maternal mortality than than just that one headline of one pregnancy death that really factors into a whole life course for the family. Right. I want to also just say a word about this this uh, Bill Ackman, the billionaire uh, hedge fund guy, and his idea to give babies. Every baby in the U.S. a million dollars. It, it's not quite that. The story is about, actually, it's his idea, and this was on TikTok, of putting $7,000 in an account for every baby born in the U.S. at birth. And that money can't be touched, and it compounds over the course of uh, a person's life so that by age 65, 
it will probably be worth in the neighborhood of a million dollars. Um, interestingly enough, this is again not a government policy, not an idea. It's just his, his brainstorming to try to uh, even out the wealth gap in the U.S. So, for that reason, I think it's it's worth considering. Uh, but he makes an interesting comment, and I guess it's because he's a billionaire himself. This program would cost roughly $20 billion to do in the U.S. every year. But apparently, that's not that much money, at least according to him. Well, you know, for uh, the few uh, summers I got to work at, at Brookings in D.C., you would hear people throw around terms like, yeah, you know, billion dollars here, billion dollars there. Eventually, start set up to something. <laughs> Well, it's a lot of money to me. I, I don't think uh, I'll get anywhere near that number of zeros in my bank account in my lifetime. Well, you know, when, when they asked Einstein the most powerful force in the universe, he said compound interest. <laughs> so Bill Ackman taking a cue there. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that, that there was an economic story to talk about with obstetrics. Uh, you know, we, we don't often make these connections. And it was actually how I kind of got into environmental health in the first place. I was uh, in fellowship at, at Penn, and there was a, a lecture hosted by Wharton with Mark Tursek. He was uh, the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, uh, but he was an odd choice for that because his job immediately prior to that was as managing director of Goldman Sachs. So you don't typically have these very high-profile uh, you know, kind of corporate executives switch into the environmental realm. Uh, if anything, they're at odds. You know, you symbolically, it's like the bulldozer coming for the tree and the bulldozers being led by industry and the you know, environmentalists have strapped themselves for the chain to the tree. Like they don't work together. But, but Mark Tursek uh, saw a very clear connection because he, he said he had to deal in reality. And when he was advising companies, uh, one example is like Coca-Cola, like the best thing he could do to advise them for their, their need for clean water sources was to invest in sustainable systems. Um, and he kind of was extrapolating that to many other decisions. So after lecture, I was very excited to go talk to him. And I asked him like, oh, so what, what are you doing with doctors or what kind of work like this is being done in healthcare? It seemed like there was a pretty clear connection. And he, he kind of smiled and looked at me and said, huh, that, that, that's a good idea. <laughs> so nothing was being done. Uh, it was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, but I, I fired off some emails, and next thing I knew, uh, I was I was invited to be this new partner between the OBGYN societies on uh, environmental issues and the Pediatrics uh, Society on environmental issues. Uh, the peds were light years ahead of us. Uh, I think it's because babies crawl around on the floor and they eat things, and so the pediatricians are always getting asked questions like, "Is this toxic? Is this toxic?" And they've had a you know just a wealth information they call their their green book or the little bible of things that might be toxic and that kind of ties into environmental environmental things so so bruce what did you make of this this water birth with uh dolphins as the doulas story first of all we, we both live near the beach has it ever occurred to you to make a dolphin a doula i must admit i have never had that thought uh i love seeing them especially when i'm out surfing it's uh it's a thrill uh, it's kind of interesting if you read the the background of the story and some of the at least the anecdotes they tell uh, the dolphins can somehow relate to the baby in the womb and I don't exactly know how they know that but that's certainly a claim that these folks make uh, I think it's important to point out that the doctor who's recommending dolphins as doulas doesn't have any uh, traditional medical training so he's not prepared to address any real uh, threats or problems during delivery. 
this seems like uh, kind of an extreme uh, extension of the whole uh, whole idea of water births, which I think has a place in obstetrics, and and most of us have worked uh, with patients that want water births. Um, but I think just overall, it's just kind of an interesting story. And of course, my mind as as someone who trained in a county hospital where emergencies were common, uh, one of the things people don't get is that uh, births can go uh, can become very very dangerous. Um, and even deadly in a short period of time. And so you always want to be able to take care of mother and baby at those moments with everything that you need. And I think uh, if you're out swimming in the ocean and baby or mom gets into trouble, uh, then there's blood in the water and maybe there's a shark nearby, wants to come check it out. It, it might not be the most safe way to deliver a baby. Of all the hazards you think about when you walk into a labor and delivery room, uh, dorsal fins aren't usually one of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean, just to be clear, like, you know, of course, there, there, there is data that, that doulas uh, who are, uh, generally speaking, considered either support uh, people or coaches through usually delivery, but also part of prenatal care, that they do improve outcomes. They are certainly a you know, valuable part of the birthing experience. And water birth, you know, has, uh, has its advocates. What, what I thought was kind of interesting when I looked into this was that... Um, you know, there's only one other mammal in the animal species that is born with the same kind of cheesecloth vernix that the human babies come out with. And it's it's kind of this like almost natural moisturizer. Uh, this is going to sound gross, but I've seen nurses take it and actually like put it on their own hands because it's so moisturizing and like to use it. Uh, but it's supposed to, we theoretically like kind of protect the baby from getting waterlogged. Like if you're sitting in the bathtub too long, your skin gets wrinkly. And the, the only other mammal that, that has this is not the dolphin or the, or the orca or other marine mammals. Uh, it's not our closest relatives like chimpanzees. It's seals and, and sea lions. They're the only other mammal born with vernix. And uh, they do not give birth in water, but they give birth near water. Uh, and, and how thick that vernix is connects to how quickly they, they jump in. So if the baby is born on land and then quickly gets into water, it's really thick vernix. Um, and so it, it always makes me kind of think and, and wonder when I hear about these water births uh, that maybe we're, we're not necessarily meant to give birth uh, submerged in, in the ocean, but, but we might somewhere in our DNA want to be near water. I have to be honest and say I always thought the vernix was something that, that nature designed just so that we wouldn't drop the babies because they can be kind of slippery. Uh, you know, I think there's a cord attached to babies. I, 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 for a while, thought that the cord was there so we wouldn't lose them in the delivery room. Yeah, they couldn't get too far away from us, and the vernix was just to make sure they didn't slip out of our hands. But that's just me. Uh, but it is interesting because you bring up the whole topic of, of the oceans with this, and that reminds me of my own sort of origin story, how I got to working on climate change. And it started one evening in October of 2006 that I, I will never forget. Uh, I just finished a long day seeing patients in the office, and I ended up reading this alumni newsletter from UC San Diego with an article called The End of the World as We Know It, which is not just the title of an REM song. It was, a, it was from top research scientists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography about this thing called global warming that I'd heard of but didn't really know anything about. But I learned that the burning of fossil fuels was rapidly destroying the balance of the world's oceans and that virtually all of life on Earth was at risk. You know, not surprisingly, I didn't sleep that night. And this was all from an alumni newsletter? It was all in that one article. As an obstetrician, I knew from experience that 
our species isn't separate from nature. You get reminded of that every single day. We're vulnerable also. And as somebody who, who truly loves surfing, I knew I couldn't stand by and just hope that somebody else would solve this massive global problem. So the next day I went out and swapped my sporty BMW for a pokey Prius, which I quickly fell in love with, by the way. And within a few weeks, I had signed on to volunteer with a local citizen sustainability board. So I just kept learning and showing up to things year after year and getting more and more frustrated with our lack of progress. So nine years ago, I left my practice so I could do this kind of work full time. And what keeps me going is I didn't uh, have enough good luck to have babies of my own, but I have always felt a real responsibility to the babies that I've delivered. You know, I got to be the first one to hold them, to sort of welcome them and watch them breathe for the first time. It was really an ongoing miracle sharing that experience with my patients and their families. And I, I, I come away from this wanting those kids and really all children to grow up in a world at least as good as the one that I've enjoyed, one where nature is thriving optimally or at least is stable. So I'll keep doing this podcast and all the other things that I do around climate change until we solve this problem. And then maybe I'll start surfing more and getting better at it. Well, for, for, um, for those who can't see this, cause it's a podcast, Bruce has a, a giant surfboard in the back of, uh, his, his zoom, uh, background. So obviously it's a combination of lifelong passions and, uh, you know, they say, OBs don't sleep. We wait. Uh, in this case, you were, you were waiting and ready for that trigger that, that connected something in your field, which clearly, uh, you know, is a passion project. And then, uh, you know, kind of another dimension of life. And it's funny how these intersections happen. Uh, I never saw it coming with a Wharton lecture. And uh, that's probably the strongest endorsement I've ever heard for an alumni newsletter to, <laughs> to change a career path. Uh, it really did. And there's more we'll say about it. I mean, one of the reasons we're called Green Docs or we're calling our, our show Green Docs is because there are so many people in healthcare coming into work on environmental issues and climate change in particular. And they all have a different story of how they got there. Uh, but that night in 2006 was definitely when the light came on for me. And um, I have many more things to say about it at another time. Yeah, and we're, we're in this field of obstetrics, which, which we often refer to as it's the business of delivering miracles. Uh, but it's not enough just to get the healthy delivery. We then want to hand off to that family something sustainable to to grow their family and and i think we both see some some threats to that but but also some solutions so we're uh, gonna share those at the end of every podcast yes nate you just came back from a trip to washington dc and your role with the governing board of the national OBGYN political action committee that's right. It was on that flight that we talked about last episode, where landing in D.C. and Virginia was rocked by uh, really kind of unprecedented turbulence. Uh, it unfortunately resulted in some injuries and even a death uh, without it needing a plane crash. And that, was, that ended up being kind of a harbinger of things to come for that D.C. trip. There were, there were a number of surprises and things that uh, were, you know, were kind of went unexpectedly wrong on that trip, which we'll get into in a, in a few minutes here, I guess. That's right. And you were going to, to do work as an advocate. Uh, and I think a lot of 
people don't really understand that that's a part of our role as physicians also. We do most of our work one-on-one with patients. But uh, since the, the context that we work in uh, is really determined by, by rules and laws, uh, it's very important that those laws are in line with the work that we want to do to help take care of people. And so advocacy regarding legislation uh, is something that, that doctors weigh in on, some of us, uh, at all levels of government. And one of the episodes we have coming up shortly will feature a congresswoman in uh, Chicago, part of the U.S. Congress, and her work uh, developing legislation uh, that's going to be very supportive for, uh, particularly for minority women who are pregnant. So uh, this is something that we take very seriously. I've I've had just to add this I I've had experience doing advocacy mostly in the local level and for a long time that was pretty much all that was happening around climate change legislation was work to promote clean energy and uh, to stop the proliferation of fossil fuels at the local government level but it certainly goes on at the state level and federal as well as you're very familiar with well yeah and that that was the trip to D.C. Uh, it was our National Lobby Day, where uh, hundreds of OBGYNs from around the country come to congregate uh, with our National OBGYN Society and really advocate for our patients. And the advocacy takes a lot of forms, but what, what caught me early on, uh, I've been doing this for about uh, over 10 years now at the, the federal and national level, was that one of our, our biggest roles is as educators. Uh, I remember uh, early on in, in advocacy, we were talking about different forms of birth control and just the, just the clarification of what some of the different options do, how they work, uh, some really, really simple uh, definitions to, to be set were, were such an eye-opener for either the uh, representatives or their legislative staff that you saw how important this role was. Because, you know, we throw terms around all the time that, that we understand but have a very different meaning in, in, lay, in lay terms. And so we are almost there as like educators and translators. And it, it opened my eyes to uh, how important the work that these national OBGYN and national medical societies do. Uh, and, they, and they really are there in a, in a rather non-political sense. You know, I mean, they represent their entire membership, which are doctors from red states and blue states. They are doctors with uh, you know, various political leanings. Uh, the, the messages are always uh, promoting science, promoting health. And uh, in our case, promoting women's health from from the clinical room to the Capitol building, and a lot of a lot of these uh, issues do end up in headlines. So, so like maternal mortality, pregnancy related deaths. For for many years now, one of uh, the the national OBGYN society's top priorities has been to get these maternal mortality review boards, which uh, kind of sorts out the root causes of these tragedies. Uh, because until you know what's happening, you really can't put in measures to, to help reduce it in the future. That was a big win. That took, I mean, believe it or not, that took years to get through. I mean, it seems like who can be against or who can be for like maternal mortality? Who can be against fixing that? But, you know, the way politics works, you have to you still have to do the legwork. Um, other things about, you know, how people plan their families, um, women choosing if and when to become mothers um, and with so many options now. You know, I mean, you can, there's everything from egg donation to surrogacy to freezing eggs. And, and, and 
the well-being of all these decisions uh, depends on some key factors that our societies support, like access to health care and empowerment of women in, in making these decisions. And that really is the tie-in to environmental issues and to climate change in particular uh, that, again, a lot of people probably don't think about. But what we do regarding these options and these policies uh, on an individual level, of course, has major uh, ramifications. But when you bring it out to a population level, it ultimately has a lot to do with how, how many babies are being born, what's happening with population growth rates, and what we really seek in order to kind of avoid a major impact and strain on resources and increased pollution is a stable population growth rate, something that's not excessive. And according to a UN report, United Nations, uh, it really depends upon four factors. First of all, the education of young girls. Secondly, empowering women, especially around their choices with reproduction, how many children they want to have, when they want to have them. Uh, a third factor is reducing the risk that newborns die in that first year. And the fourth one, which is especially consistent with, with our message today, is giving women access to safe and effective birth control. And so really anybody working with patients and dispensing family planning information are sort of accidental environmentalists because they are ultimately having an impact on the number of people in society through uh, empowering women to make these choices as they wish. Yeah, and, and certainly this does play out at the global level. Uh, a lot of these interventions that the UN report was working on touched upon um, areas of the world where maybe girls don't have access to education, for example. Um, uh, and the, the contraception needs, a lot of these are uh, addressing unmet needs. So this isn't necessarily you know promoting it where it's not desired, but meeting, meeting those unmet needs for, for people who want to plan their families in a certain way and, and want the power to do so. And I, I mean, here, we, we often thought of these as international issues, but here in the United States, uh, you know, in some cases it has become an issue here about, about how much access women have to, um, say, say controlling the pregnancies. And, uh, that was one of several things that, that we were in DC to talk about, uh, among other topics, I mean, we were there to really talk about getting pregnant women in more research studies, uh, like what was done for the COVID vaccines. Uh, one of the, and we just heard from the opening story about how COVID made these pregnancy-related deaths uh, more severe. Part of the reason it was so hard to get the messaging out early on was that pregnant women weren't included in the vaccine studies. So we were less able to speak confidently about the safety of it. We were there in D.C. to talk about, um, you know, ensuring clinics, especially in underserved areas, could could basically keep their doors open and keep that access to care available. Uh, but what was surprising and, and different this visit was that, you know, even with this list, rather broad list of uh, you know, really important women's health priorities, we were told that if, uh, you know, we were in certain certain offices, certain uh, political parties offices, we would not be allowed to talk of any about it. We couldn't mention any topic if we said the word, some abortion. <laughs> and so you didn't. And so we didn't. But there were a few exceptions to that. Uh, and I think it goes to show that there's, there's a lot to be said for opening dialogue and finding common ground, even where you might not think that it uh, is present. 
And to get there, we're, we're going to hear from our next guest, uh, Dr. Kristen Lyerly, in just a minute. And now we'd like to bring in Dr. Kristen Lyerly, who's been waiting patiently in the green womb. Dr. Lyerly was with me in D.C. among the hundreds of other OBGYN doctors. She is herself an OBGYN, a physician advocate, and a former candidate for state assembly in the Midwest. Kristen, welcome to the Green Docs. Nate, I knew you were going to say green womb, and it still got me. (laughs) Thank you guys so much for having me. Hello, Green Docs. Hey, Kristen. Well, you know, one of the things that we do on the show is we cite our sources. So I have to give credit to ChatGPT. Uh, they came up with Green Womb as we were <laughs> as we were deciding what we might call this, you know, silly little thing we're doing here. Uh, we asked Chat AI for ideas for you know naming a podcast like this, and the Green Womb was was one of the first. Just another exceptional use for artificial intelligence. Yeah, what we're really talking about here. Uh, so you've, you've been involved in a lot of things, Kristen, not only, uh, you know, in leadership with, with, uh, you know, within medicine, leadership within politics, uh, but you were always kind of cheering us on. You've, uh, you've been the mascot for your university in Minnesota, uh, the Golden Gophers. Go Gophers. Mm, that is a true fact. Go Gophers. Sky you ma, fellow Gophers. Uh, so, so, Kristen, tell us about, uh, you know, why you wanted to run for office and then uh, how you ended up in a hotel room for this interview. <laughs> wow, there's a lot that happened from, you know, between those two points in time. Um, yeah, I ran for state assembly in Wisconsin, which is our state house back in 2020. And I did it because of COVID. And the short version of the story is that in April of 2020, remember what it was like? Like, think back to that point in time. COVID was new. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know how to be safe. We didn't know how long this was going to last. And in Wisconsin, we had to go to the polls. We had a spring election and we went to the polls. And in Green Bay, where I live, there are typically about 35 polling sites. We were down to two. So we went down and saw all those people standing in line outside with masks on. It's cold in April in Wisconsin. And people were standing in a line that was, I'm not kidding you, it was probably half a mile long because they were so committed and so angry about the situation. And having seen all of those people, I thought, man, there's got to be something that a doctor can do who is politically engaged at the beginning of a pandemic. There's got to be something I can do here. And so I started having conversations with people and it became apparent that the assembly seat did not have that where I live did not have a Democratic opponent. So I became a Democrat, which I wasn't before. And I ran for the seat. And man, it was a wild ride, but no regrets. So Kristen, those those polling lines, were they longer or shorter than the Green Bay Packers season tickets uh, wait for the lines? Oh, Nate, they were so much shorter. Yeah. Come to Lambeau. I'll show you. We can't wait to get there for a uh, for college football game. <laughs> right. We've been trying to do cause, that. Because Notre Dame plays there every now and then. Yeah. So Kristen, uh, with all the uncertainty swirling around the danger of this pandemic, this was well before vaccines were available. And I'm sure you had 
your the complexity of your practice as well as your personal life must have been escalating as it was in many other places, but really everywhere uh, around the country. And you still decided to take on something like running for the assembly. That, that's uh, so. What if you had been elected? What was uh, where was the fire in your belly? What were you going to get done in that in the position? Everything was chaos, Bruce. So it's it was hard to know, first of all, how to pull everything together. And then what would it look like? Like, were there going to be enough Democrats elected to be actually be able to have a voice? Because the strategy really depends on what the makeup of your legislature is. So there was so much uncertainty. But I think as a physician, the logical thing is healthcare. just really trying to focus on healthcare initiatives. Wisconsin still is one of those states that has not passed Medicaid expansion, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen this time either, although the governor has just put it in his budget. So there are so many opportunities. Black women in Wisconsin have five times the rate of white women, five times the rate of potentially dying associated with their pregnancy and childbirth. Wisconsin is a really tough state for women, and it's gotten worse because since then, when Dobbs happened, we reverted back to an 1849, 1849, before the Civil War, before we knew that germs caused disease. 1849 is the law that we are following right now. It's a criminal abortion ban where the only exception is the life of the mother. Wisconsin is in terrible, terrible shape right now, but there is hope. And Kristen, you're, you're uh, you know, a, a, an OBGYN, and so you're seeing patients also. H- has any of this uh, impacted you in, in your, your practice or in your colleagues' practice? Have you, have you seen changes already in how you care for patients uh, after this uh, ruling? Oh, yeah. Immediately after Dobbs, we were all putting our heads together to try to figure out how do we take care of people? How do we manage miscarriages? How is an ectopic pregnancy putting us in danger? So all of my colleagues are still operating under this very tenuous idea that they could potentially be charged with a felony for literally taking care of their patients. So immediately the attorney general and the governor came together and they filed a lawsuit, which now is against the DAs in Wisconsin to try to determine whether the DAs will enforce this ban. Some DAs have said they will, some DAs have said they won't, most haven't said anything. I joined that lawsuit as an intervener. And because of that, because I'm so vocal on behalf of all of my colleagues and the women and families in Wisconsin, that I don't feel that it's safe for me to practice in Wisconsin. So I'm actually practicing in rural Minnesota right now. And I have to tell you, I'm kind of loving it. Don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You gotcha. What a uh, interesting uh, predicament we find ourselves in where where state legislatures in many parts of the country are actually directly putting women at risk on a daily basis and therefore families since women are so central to everything going on in the family. Um, I have so much respect for your and other people's willingness to wade into these things you know so uh, speaking of environmental issues and impacts on women's health, it just personally, how does uh, environment factor into your life, the choices that you make and how you live? I have to be very honest with you. I 
am very interested in being a responsible human in the world and recognizing the climate crisis. I have four young sons, and that is the number one issue for them. So out of respect for them, we've done some things in the area where I live, which is, you know, it's pretty conservative there. We don't have a lot of electric vehicles and a lot of things that are super environmentally friendly, but I have an electric vehicle. There are no charging stations around, but I have an electric vehicle. I compost. I try to do all of those little things, but it's hard for me to really understand and really embrace uh, the how much the environment and OBGYN are related. And I really appreciated your opening and how you talked about those connections, because I think it's hard for us to make those connections sometimes and recognize it's such a giant global thing. And it's hard to wrap your head around it all. Well, that's that, that's kind of what we want to be talking about here, are these, these connections uh, about things that you may already be doing, uh, whether it's in your life and you've switched away from a plastic water bottle, you know, and and it just because it tastes better, which is what I've been doing here. You've seen me holding this non-plastic bottle, it just tastes better. Uh, and also things that are important to uh, OBGYNs, things like access to contraception, things like uh, empowering women in society. These are things that are part of your everyday life that maybe you, you don't see a, a environment or more specifically kind of climate crisis connection, but but it is part of the story. And it, it just kind of brings into sharper relief how important it is that we protect these uh, access issues uh, for our patients, which uh, which kind of brings me to our experience recently in Washington D.C., where we had uh, many things that that our society wanted to talk to elected leaders about. Chris, if you could just kind of give me a little bit of your uh, your insight and, and reaction to what happened in in D.C. and uh, our lobby efforts. Yeah, it was a really different congressional leadership conference. This was my 13th CLC, and I always enjoy going to this meeting because there's so much energy and so much enthusiasm. And this time we knew it was going to be different because we hadn't been together for a long time. Of course, we're in the post-Dobbs era now, so we're all fired up and ready to get out there and do some good in the world. And there were some restrictions placed on our ability to get out there and deliver the messages that we wanted to deliver. And I think that some of us understood why those restrictions were there. Some of us practice in pretty contentious environments. And that really played out as we went to the Hill and we saw different things happening. For example, a group of residents were having lunch in one of the congressional lunchrooms and the people sitting next to them got up and laid out a bunch of pictures of aborted fetuses, walked away and tapped them on their shoulders as they walked away and said, we left these for you. Harassment. There was another group from Texas who went to go visit their senator and after sharing their asks, they were scolded, that was the word that they used, scolded firmly by the staffer in the senator's office about being abortionists and about how they were politicizing this issue, how the doctors were politicizing the medical issue. I, it really, it, we are living in such surreal times. And just to kind of bring it back to what uh, our purpose was there, it really was to uh, reach our uh, congressional offices and uh, give them our perspective as both a member of their constituency uh, in their residence to offer expertise as a physician, 
and offer really firsthand stories from the patients who, who we take care of. That's kind of the primary purpose of these meetings, right? Is to build a relationship with the offices. Sure is. Yeah, it's all about the relationship. And it's not just about abortion. You know, you keep hearing us say abortion is healthcare, abortion is healthcare. And what that means is abortion is integrated into every piece of healthcare that we deliver, whether it's miscarriage management or infertility treatment or helping somebody with a complicated pregnancy. But there are other factors as well that we talk with our representatives about. Things like this time it was making sure that medications were safe for pregnant and lactating women. We give pregnant and lactating women a lot of medications. They need medications, but we don't have a lot of data. So in a way, we're kind of experimenting on the whole population. And the goal is to safely try these these medications out and make sure that people who properly are, are properly consented to do this can ensure that these medications are safer for the general population. I mean, it is such like a logical thing to do that it's easy to talk about because it's bipartisan and it makes sense. And if you've had someone in your life who's had a baby, you've probably been through this experience. So those are the things that we're really focusing on. But abortion becomes part of that conversation as well. Well, and that's what would have been so so unfortunate and so much of what is lost if all communication gets broken down is that you know, one of the themes was including pregnancy in more research because it often is left out and kind of back to your initial uh, impetus for running for office. Uh, COVID was a big example of that, where we didn't have pregnant patients included in the trials. And so it was harder to say early on with as much confidence, the safety and the real benefit of uh, the COVID vaccine. And so this effort that that our societies were advancing to have more data and research around medications that pregnant and lactating women would be using to have more, you know, again, environment ties in here to have more toxin screens. Um, you know, we really can't lose that uh, as part of the conversation just because we disagree on on certain topics. And and a lot of what the uh, the um, priorities were were really just keeping doors open, right? Keeping keeping mm-hmm. doctors' doors open uh, with with some of these really, I mean, it's just blocking cuts that that are proposed. Yeah. And in places like where I am right now, this hospital is owned by the community and they've had to come up It's rural Minnesota. They've had to come up with some very clever ways to keep their doors open and to bring more women in because people are having to drive for an hour, two hours to get the care that they need. The weather isn't great here. It wasn't great when I arrived last night. I mean, you really need to have these resources close to home. So there are lots of innovative ways to solve these problems. And it's when we bring those ideas to our legislators, that's how we get these problems solved. Well, I just want to throw in the point also that that all these these barriers that you're talking about, that uh, these unfortunate uh, so-called leaders are putting in your way, are, are particularly dangerous to people uh, that have less means, that, that have limited access to transportation, that aren't able to get uh, health insurance for for whatever reason. Uh, it just makes it worse for the disadvantaged, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, all of these things. This has been a perpetual theme that when we see problems like this, the people who are underrepresented are always end up with the short end of the stick. And fortunately, and that's one of the great things about ACOG, I think they have really made a point with their diversity, equity, and inclusion programs to make sure that we're centering 
populations who have not been centered, who have been oppressed in the past, and making sure that we are taking care of everyone the way that they need to be taken care of. Yeah. So some of the, some of the, the the key takeaways that I that I remember from um, the, this most recent DC experience was uh, number one, we really do need to to have protections for access to to basic parts of our field like contraception, like like mm-hmm. family planning counseling. Uh, but also we we need we need the leaders to be having open dialogue. There are clearly going to be times when we don't just don't don't agree, uh, and that, that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. We should we should we should embrace that. Uh, but there are so many other things where we do agree. And all these priorities we're talking about, whether it's Medicaid expansion, more pregnant uh, women in studies around vaccine safety or medication, uh, and you know, reaching, reaching uh, marginalized communities, none of it gets better by, by silence. No. And I had a great conversation with my congressperson. Actually, it wasn't him. It was his rep. And we had known each other a little bit. But I laid out the asks. And then I said, you know, what do you want to talk about? And he talked about non-competes. That's a big priority for him. So how could I bring that back to ACOG? Non-competes affect us too. How could I bring that back? And would we, we consider partnering with them? You know, potentially. So we've started that conversation. And then I opened the door to talk about abortion because I said, well, I'm an OBGYN. That's the elephant in the room. I know that you are pro-life. I am pro-patient. But, you know, let's talk about some of the questions that you have. And he asked me about the exception for the life of the mother. He asked me how I know that someone's life is in danger. And I really appreciated that because people do think that there is some sort of a, a bright line there, you know, like some bing detector goes off like, well, it's time to take care of her. They don't realize that the reason that we do things in advance is because pregnant women look so good until they crash. And once they start to turn that corner, it's hard to get them back. And then we are literally risking their lives. So to be able to explain that to someone who doesn't have an understanding of that, I think we both walked away feeling like that was a really mutually beneficial conversation. We didn't, he's still pro-life and I'm still pro-patient, but at least we're getting a little bit closer with the dialogue. Well, it sounds like we need to hear more from physician leaders like you. Uh, where, where can we hear more of your, your content and your stories? What's next for you? Oh my gosh, I'm everywhere. I'm on the radio sometimes in Wisconsin, streaming and on podcasts. You can find it on civicmedia.us. I'm on Up North News. That's the little show that we do in the mornings. Um, I'm also on Twitter and it's just my name, Kristen Lyerly, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-L-Y-E-R-L-Y. It's all one word. And some people know me as Kristen for Wisconsin. Wink. I'm out there. So, yeah, I mean, please, to your audience, please continue to follow with Nate and Bruce because this is such an important topic. And really, the intersection between environment and health is it's critical to the future of, of our mankind. So, yeah, thank you guys so much for doing this and for, for allowing me to be your first guest. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us and also just for the for demonstrating what to me is true leadership, which is despite all the other demands and stresses on your life, stepping forward into your community uh, and and uh, continuing to find ways to improve the lives of everybody around you. So you really are the episode hero for episode one. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Bruce. We're all in this together, baby.
So at the beginning of the episode, we mentioned that we'd be not only talking about some problems, but also offering solutions. This is something we'll be doing every episode in a segment we've currently called our final push. Uh, so Bruce, what, what can we take away from this dilemma in DC that we just heard about uh, from some firsthand accounts, uh, given the, the importance of having informed women's health and, and this reproductive rights perspective applied uh, to all levels of government? I mean, local, state, federal, it, it all seems to matter so much. Right. We need policies that will help protect pregnancy, bottom line, and women's health. Uh, as OBGYNs and just as members of a, of a society. So uh, we always like to uh, recommend certain actions that you can take that will have an impact on what we're talking about. And, and for this episode, one thing that comes to mind is that during the next campaign cycle, uh, ask people running for office that want your votes, ask them direct questions about these issues. And if you like what you hear, lend your support however you can to candidates who understand and will support these kinds of policies. And of course, show up and vote for leaders like Kristen uh, and others uh, and help remove people who won't even talk about these topics or would actively block them. Again, these are fairly brief, uh, actionable steps, but uh, with each episode, we will have things that you can do uh, wherever it is you are that will help to not only protect you and your family, but also the rest of your community. Yeah. And the idea is to make them actionable, not just to you know, vamp or, or give platitudes, but things you really can you know, do that, that same day or week in, in your life. Uh, in this case, it just happens to be more system solutions. Right. Actionable and impactful. And we will always provide links with our episodes that have resources for you to help you do that. But anyway, Nate, what's coming up next for you? Well, I was recently interviewed by CNN about that story. You may have seen it, uh, that when there was the earthquake in Turkey, somehow, miraculously, uh, a baby was born amongst the rubble and, and survived. Uh, and so that was a, a dramatic story that uh, has some environmental and uh, natural disaster tie-ins. So that should be uh, airing uh, sometime soon. And then I'm, I'm headed to Chicago, uh, kind of uh, where it all began in a way with um, the connection, my liaison role between the OBGYN society and the pediatric society and get to hear what new things babies are, are trying to eat around the house. <laughs> How about you, Bruce? What do you have coming up? Uh, a couple of talks coming up I'm excited about. One of them is with Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School about advocacy for health professionals on climate change. And uh, this is a growing movement within healthcare, and I'm really excited to talk to that audience. Uh, and uh, actually, there's a, a talk I'm giving I'm even maybe a little bit more jazzed about, and that is with uh, the American Medical Student Association on Earth Day. And we're going to be talking about how to help get uh, climate's impacts on health into medical school curriculums, and also what these doctors in training can do to help move us forward as a society, acting on environmental challenges and climate change in particular. And uh, I, I am really excited to talk to people at this stage in their careers because they're very enthusiastic. They get this problem. They don't have to be convinced and they really want to do something about it. So uh, they are the ideal audience for us to be talking to. Yeah, and, and what always strikes me is that 
even if they don't imagine it impacting their career, like let's say they're doing something in, I don't know, surgery, anesthesia, where they don't see a direct connection, although maybe there could be, they want to make it part of their life. Uh, they're very invested in this topic, both the, both professionally and kind of as a, a citizen. And this, this ties into our next episode, uh, which will be Earth Day 53. We need a 1970s reboot, which will air just before Earth Day, uh, April 22nd. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com. You can send us comments and submit questions, which we'll be answering uh, in future episodes. And don't forget to follow so you don't miss an episode and share with your friends. That's right. This episode of Green Docs was written by Bruce Bacara and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of Imagine Podcasting. Again, our website is greendocspodcast.com. Please share with anyone who might be interested or just random people you meet in line at Whole Foods. We'll see you soon.